This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, our contribution to the Christmas spirit, a chat with Sean Wilentz about Bob Dylan's Christmas album and why the heck he did one. But first, what can we do about the high price of prescription drugs? Trump Watch starts right now. Well, there are two major efforts underway now to do something about the high price of prescription drugs. One proposal comes from Elizabeth Warren and one from Bernie Sanders, and they are quite different. For comment and analysis, we turn to David Dayan. He's an award-winning investigative reporter who writes for The New Republic, The Intercept, and The Nation. His new book is Fat Cat, The Stephen Mnuchin Story. David Dayan, welcome back. Thanks for having me on. Well, here's a typical story about the high price of prescription drugs. I have a friend who had cancer but is now in remission. She's on maintenance chemotherapy. The drugs she needs cost, used to cost $12,000 a month, but the manufacturer recently raised the price to $14,000 because, as she explained, they're thinking, why not? Almost everybody agrees that sort of thing is terrible, but Elizabeth Warren actually wants to do something about it. She introduced a bill in Congress last week to try to get the prices down. Tell us about her bill. Yeah, so the bill which she introduced uh, with a House uh, companion, uh, Jan Schakowsky, uh, would create a, a new agency called the Office of Drug Manufacturing. And in cases where there's no competition or there are spikes in prices like what you just described or there are uh, large shortages and, and tr- you know, generally where patients have trouble accessing the drug, whether because of price or, or frequency, the, this office would have the authority to manufacture generic versions of, of any drug that falls into that category and sell it at a price that is accessible to the American people. A public drug manufacturer. Uh, isn't that, uh, isn't that, uh, well, doesn't that mean, <laughs> I mean, uh, I can imagine what Big Pharma is saying about about this. If the government has the yeah. power to manufacture drugs in competition with private corporations, what's to stop the government from running the hospitals? What's to stop the government from employing the doctors? That's socialized medicine. That's not allowed in the land of the free. That's a real slippery slope you're uh, talking about there, John. Yes. Uh, but in reality, we already have something like that. It's called uh, the VA. The VA is socialized medicine, which hires doctors and, and, and you know, uh, uh, gives out treatments. And indeed, just recently, the VA has started manufacturing generic versions of prescription drugs. So this wow. uh, has a precedent in the United States. Uh, and uh, what Warren is doing here is reacting to sort of a market failure. Uh, you know, you mentioned how Bernie Sanders had this bill that came out last month that would say that any drug that is uh, being offered at an excessive price, uh, we're going to take the patent for that drug and allow generic manufacturers to manufacture it. 
Because the theory is that when you p- open these up to generic competition, that that drives down the price. Well, actually what we're seeing is the generic market is broken in some ways. Uh, about 40% of all generic drug treatments uh, have no competition. There's only one manufacturer that is making that treatment. Uh, that's not the way this was designed. It was designed for uh, competition to flourish and, and have an effect on cost. Uh, there's an active investigation right now of price fixing between generic drug companies who are were colluding with one another, allegedly. Uh, the, the, this is a, an invest, a federal investigation going on right now. So what Warren is saying is, look, this... The, the, the whole idea of a generic market can bring prices down, but only if there's real competition. And if the private sector cannot create that competition, the public sector, the government, can step in and provide it for them. So what Warren has uh, proposed, the Office of Drug Manufacturing that sounds like a great idea, but if big pharma can't stop it, obviously their next move will be to try to take it over to get you know one of their lobbyists made the director of it and uh, and and make it a a slave to the to uh, big pharma. Uh, has Elizabeth Warren thought of that? Yeah, that's a really interesting part of this bill, and I, I can't think of uh, something very similar that I've seen in legislation, but the legislation. Ex- explicitly says that former drug company lobbyists would be banned from holding the director's position for the Office of Drug Manufacturing, and any senior executive of a drug company that was subject to some sort of regulatory enforcement, some sort of wrongdoing, would also be barred from holding that position. Now, mind you, this would uh, mean that the current head of the FDA... Uh, uh, Scott Gottlieb would not be able to serve as the head of the Office of Drug Manufacturing oh, because wow. he worked for a bunch of drug companies. The same with the head of the uh, Department of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, uh, worked for Eli Lilly. Uh, so this this would actually make these Trump figures ineligible to run this office, which is uh, you know really interesting. Do I remember correctly that Donald Trump campaigned around bringing the price of prescription drugs down? Wasn't that one of his promises? That was a promise, and uh, I'm sure if you talk to him, he'd say he's fulfilled that promise. <laughs> uh, the reality, the reality is that drug prices have, have not really gone down. There was this sort of uh, dust up with Pfizer and some other drug companies that said, "Okay, we're going to pause our prices." Uh, in reaction to some Trump tweets and pressure, but they've all announced that they're going to raise them in January. So mm-hmm. it was just a total bait and switch. Uh, the Trump administration is doing some things on, on prescription drugs that are kind of interesting, but they're somewhat limited. Uh, the, the Trump administration has actually put together a proposal to use an international index of prices and say that drugs that are you know sold in the United States or used in the United States must uh, have similar price points to those international prices. Now, that sounds great, but the, the reality is that it's only a tiny slice of drugs within Medicare that are administered within hospitals that are eligible for this change. It's very minor. 
Um, in reality, the, the Sanders bill that I referenced before would build on this Trump idea, which only uses a, a you know, only affects a handful of drugs, and would, uh, the Sanders bill would affect, you know, most of the drugs on the market. So, um, you know, Trump has been relatively unsuccessful in getting prescription drug prices under control, but there are some ideas in there that could be built on uh, with sufficient will. So Bernie Sanders' approach is to license generic drugs and to, to spur the production of competitive generic drugs where now there's uh, strange monopolistic practices among the generic drug manufacturers. Elizabeth Warren's proposal is quite different, that the federal government should manufacture drugs itself. Would you call these two uh, different approaches opposing approaches? I would not. Um, in fact, many of the same people sort of on the outside of this, experts in uh, the, the, the field, worked on both of these bills, and, and they see them as complementary. So what Sanders is going after is the sort of monopoly patent system, which uh, really, you know, it gives a brand-name drug manufacturer exclusive access up to 20 years in some cases of, uh, you know, providing the, that, that particular drug treatment. Uh, and, you know, that almost ensures high prices. And so Sanders is attacking that part of the system and saying, well, what we need to do is, is create more generic drugs and use, you know, take these licenses away where people are being gouged. What Warren is saying is, well, where the generic drug system has broken down, we need government to step in. So they, they kind of work in tandem. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's the Warren bill that sort of makes the Sanders bill kind of work in some way. Uh -huh. You know, I remember the, one of the biggest scandals about uh, drug pricing was the EpiPen, uh, which yeah. is you know, required to save the lives of people who are having severe allergic toxic uh, reactions. Uh, remind us of what happened with the EpiPen, and, and as a result, they were going to be uh, generic manufacturers were going to start producing it. Right. So the EpiPen, uh, as you correctly said, uh, the price of it skyrocketed. There was no generic competition for it. It's made by a company called Mylan. Pharmaceuticals, which uh, interestingly is the CEO of which is a woman named Heather Bresch, who is the daughter of Joe Manchin, the uh. senator from <laughs> West Virginia. Um, but uh, so Mylan got a lot of pressure, and they said, "Okay, we'll we'll put a, a generic version together that's half the price." It, it used to cost six hundred dollars for a two pack of these, and they said, "Well, we'll sell them for three hundred Now this used to sell for like. Yeah. So yeah. $300 isn't much of a help. Uh, so Teva Pharmaceuticals said, uh, okay, we will also make a generic version. Now, you think with another pharmaceutical company entering the market that they would want to set their price point lower than where Mylan is at to capture some of that market share. But the Teva generic cost the exact same amount as the Mylan generic, Ugh. which makes absolutely no sense uh, in, in, in any economics format, but I guess makes sense when you have no other options, and these are life-saving drugs that you simply have to get a hold of if you have this affliction. 
Well, that's that's uh, that's a fascinating story, and we want we'll get back to you to follow the progress of these these two complementary efforts of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. I want to change our focus now to your new book, uh, Fat Cat, the Steve Mnuchin story. This is about Donald Trump's Treasury Secretary. Uh, he describes himself as quote, a former investment banker, film producer, and hedge fund manager, close quote. How would you describe him? I might describe him that way, but I might not have as positive uh, connotations with all three of those things uh, as maybe he does. You know, Mnuchin is a guy who was kind of a legacy. His father was a partner at Goldman Sachs. His brother worked at Goldman Sachs. And then, lo and behold, when he comes out of college, he goes to work for Goldman Sachs. He's involved. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren has actually called him the Forrest Gump of the financial crisis because he huh. seems to be at every step of where the problems were. He uh, did some work with uh, this guy, Lou Ranieri, who was the grandfather of the mortgage-backed security, the instrument that caused things to blow up in the financial crisis. He ends up working at Goldman on the mortgage desk. Goldman Sachs uh, is, you know, the, the, the bank that's most associated with the big short, uh, with, with shorting the housing market in order to profit. Uh, he then goes on uh, and buys up, uh, when he goes uh, private, he goes away from Goldman Sachs, he starts a hedge fund, and he buys this failed bank, this subprime lender named IndyMac, he converts the name to One West Bank. He gets a sweetheart deal with the FDIC uh, that essentially puts a stop loss on any losses that he can uh, 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 take on uh, in, in these toxic mortgages. And he proceeds to, uh, through this bank, foreclose uh, on, on tens of thousands of people uh, in, in dodgy ways, uh, much like we saw with other banks in the crisis. So really, at every step, uh, he, he is associated with some of the worst practices of the financial crisis. And then he, instead of, you know, uh, going to jail for any of that stuff, uh, he runs into Donald Trump and he becomes uh, the finance chair of the Trump campaign and then eventually Treasury Secretary, where he uh, pretty methodically begins to roll back a lot of the uh, protections that were put in place right after the financial crisis to protect the public from people like him. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, and, and he goes on and pays back uh, all of his uh, bank buddies with this uh, spate of deregulation. So it's really a fascinating story about uh, someone who who uh, is on both ends, sort of, of, uh, of the financial crisis and its aftermath. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with David Dayen. Uh, he's got a new book just published, Fat Cat, the Stephen Mnuchin story. We're laughing, but, you know, we're shaking our heads over this whole thing. Uh, I didn't really know much about him until his he was nominated, and I looked up at his Senate confirmation hearing. The vote was actually quite close, 53 to 47, uh, which says a lot. <clears throat> uh, one of the main claims uh, Democrats uh, made against him was not just his record uh, of foreclosures during the financial crisis, but uh, 
Uh, his own failures to disclose nearly $100 million in assets, $100 million in assets, uh, that, that would keep KPFK, the lights on at KPFK for another year, I think. Uh, and also, he failed to reveal his role as the director of an investment fund based in the Cayman Islands. Uh, can you tell us anything more about his failure to disclose assets and what might be going on in the Cayman Islands? <laughs> Well, what's really interesting is that that failure to disclose has continued while he's in office uh, as the Treasury Secretary. It wasn't until a few weeks ago that Mnuchin uh, and a couple other members of the Trump cabinet actually gave their 2017 financial disclosures in as they are required to do. And this is, you know, well over uh, uh, a year ago. We're, we're talking about something that was very, very late. Uh, and it showed that he made lots and lots of money from all different kinds of sources, including, uh, and this is kind of interesting, he has made uh, quite a bit of money off the Sears debacle. Really? Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, Eddie Lampert, who is the guy who sort of single-handedly destroyed Sears uh, by buying it up, loading it up with debt, and, and, and mismanaging the thing, well, Eddie Lampert was Steve Mnuchin's college roommate. <laughs> yeah. This is all amazing. And, <laughs> and uh, Mnuchin would get in on a lot of these financial engineering deals that Lampert made uh, while uh, running Sears. And one of them was this group called Seritage Properties. And Seritage was essentially a split of Sears the business from Sears the underlying real estate. So they, they, they cut it in half. They said, the business is over here, and we're going to make a new company and sell the real estate to this company. Uh, they sold the real estate to Eddie Lampert's hedge fund, Ugh. which among, among the people in it was, you know, Steve Mnuchin was one of the investors in this. And so anytime Sears closes a property, uh, it reverts back to this heritage, which then can redevelop it and sort of make money off the, the shuttering of this venerable institution. Now, I must interrupt at this point because Santa Monica has a very famous old Sears store quite close to That's the right. beach, which is currently being redeveloped. Does that have anything to do with Stephen Mnuchin's participation in this hedge fund? Indeed, Seritage uh, owns that uh, real estate, and it is one of the many Sears properties that are being redeveloped. Uh, and, and think of the value of beachfront property in Santa Monica, and you'll know that this is extremely lucrative uh, and on, in an ongoing way for uh, ESL, which is the hedge fund that uh, Eddie Lampert owns, uh, and its investors, which, uh, you know, among them being Stephen Mnuchin. Uh, I believe he finally divested from that, and for good reason, because, uh, you know, one of the things with the Sears bankruptcy is that they may default on their pensions. And at that point, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation is uh, the, the public sector agency that has to figure out how are we going to pay these Sears workers, hundreds of thousands of them, that were laid off but are owed this uh, pension. Yeah. And who sits on the Pension Guar uh, Benefit Guarantee uh, Corporation? 
Well, one of the members is the Treasury Secretary, oh. and that's Stephen Mnuchin. <laughs> so he's going to have a say in this pension, which affects his former college buddy, Eddie Lambert. Uh, David, did your college roommate start uh, hedge funds that you're participating in? I think not, we need to disclose if that's the case. <laughs> not that I'm aware of. Okay. Okay. Uh, so we've covered Stephen Mnuchin's um, uh, role as America's foreclosure king, his failure to disclose assets, his participation in uh, in extremely deceptive and exploitative schemes. What about his work in Hollywood as a film producer? Did he actually produce films, or did he just put up money for them? Uh, yeah, I mean, he was he was a money man. Uh, he, he created this uh, this company, I believe, it's called Dune Entertainment, and he was uh, you know a backer of many many films. I mean, it's it's a bit surprising. When you uh, uh, go through uh, films like the X-Men franchise and Avatar and uh, sort of uh, American Sniper and uh, a whole bunch of uh, these, these different uh, uh, productions, uh, but he was mainly an investor, a money man, as it were. Uh, he, he was also an actor for one movie. He, he got a non-speaking role. Uh, uh, in a movie called Rules Don't Apply that uh, came out in 2016, and he played an investment banker from Merrill Lynch <laughs> named Steve Mnuchin. That was the actual name of the character in it. So uh, I guess it was life-imitating art. Rules Don't Apply. That's kind of a meaningful uh, title, too, also. Uh, one last question about your, your book, Fat Cat, the Steve Mnuchin story. Did you try to interview the Treasury Secretary for this book? Uh, needless to say, this is an unauthorized biography of Steve Mnuchin. Um, and uh, uh, considering that uh, the reporting that I've done on him in the past, uh, uh, it, it would probably be un, unadvisable and a bit of a dead end for me to try to interview <laughs> Steve Mnuchin uh, for this. But all of it is in the public record, everything uh, we back up. Uh, myself and my co-author, uh, Rebecca Burns, uh, uh, we, we you know really dug into the record to really try to paint a picture of this guy. And uh, I, I, I think we did a pretty good job. The book is Fat Cat, the Steve Mnuchin story. The author is David Dayan. David, thanks so much for talking with us today. All right. Thanks a lot. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Tom Frank. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK. Uh, later in this hour, Christmas with Bob Dylan. But now it's time to talk with Tom Frank from the archives. New York Times op-ed columnist Michelle Goldberg wrote on Sunday about what she called this very dark time when the news from Washington often makes her sick with despair. We feel the same way, so we called Tom Frank... He's good at explaining things. He's founder of The Baffler, former columnist for The Wall Street Journal and Harper's, and a regular contributor now to The Guardian. He's written many books, and he's got a new one out now. 
It's called Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. Tom Frank, welcome back. I'm glad to be here, John. Well, there was a time when Democrats controlled the White House and both houses of Congress. That was 2009 and 2010, eight years ago. How did we get from there to here so quickly? Your book, oh my God. Your oh my book Rendezvous with Oblivion, deals precisely with that question. Why did millions of ordinary Americans support Donald Trump? You know, one answer is they were driven to madness by the presence of a black man in the White House. You don't agree that this is the most important explanation. Why not? Yeah, that's right. Because, I mean, there certainly are plenty of people who hated Barack Obama. And, I mean, I remember with a sort of feeling of shock the first time I encountered one of them. Yeah, those people those people definitely exist, and they were definitely loud during the 2016 election, and you had since then you've had a kind of a great awakening of you know racism in this country, you know the like the march in Charlottesville and stuff like that. Yeah. But I think that that is the the people who really swung this election in my in my view, and you know this is something you could argue about all day and all night, but are those counties that the sort of uh, white working class voters in those upper midwestern states, a lot of those counties. And a lot of these are people who who voted for Obama the first time around and the second time around. And you can track this change. Um, and if that change had not, and, and also let's add into that, a lot of black working class people who voted for Obama and who were not enthusiastic about Hillary Clinton. And between those two groups, uh, that's basically the story of what happened in 2016, or I should say that's a story of what happened in 2016. Well, that's certainly where we can look to find <clears throat> the the swing votes. The, the Yeah, and, oh, and by the way, I, I mean, I can, I can go on and on about this for a long time, but I didn't even realize that Donald Trump was going to be the nominee until it was almost over. And then I started, you know, I started reading up on him, and everything I read said, you know, this guy is running this one-note racist campaign. And, uh, then I, so I was like, huh, that's that's weird. And I went and watched a whole bunch of videos on YouTube. I binge watched a whole bunch of Trump. <laughs> you know these videos of his of his uh, his rallies. And I was surprised that in addition to the bigotry, which is you know loud, as I said before, his his bigotry, which is open and is disgusting. Uh, he also talked about a lot of uh, subjects that were very familiar to me, uh, deindustrialization and, and trade deals. And when he talked about the trade deals, it's as though the guy was lifting his script from, like, AFL-CIO talking points. It was, it was bizarre. And he has stuck with that theme up until um, quite recently here. I mean, he talks about it, about trade and about deindustrialization all the time. This is one of the things that really sunk uh, Hillary Clinton was Trump's, the way he talked about trade and about deindustrialization. This was really the Achilles heel of the Democrats. So, so okay, you're a pundit, so we have to ask you, what's going to happen now that he's imposing tariffs? Are the steel and aluminum tariffs on Canada and Mexico going to reopen that carrier plant in Indianapolis? What will the Trump supporters say when the EU imposes $3 billion in tariffs on American bourbon, American jeans, and American motorcycles. What will they say in Iowa when China taxes the import of pork and soybeans? Uh, I know. it's The guy doesn't know what he's doing. He's absolutely incompetent. 
being able to say, you know, saying that NAFTA uh, was designed to deindustrialize places and to, and to weaken to, to weaken the bargaining power of workers is a true statement. To then do what Donald Trump is doing, I mean, it's almost unrelated. It has nothing to do with it. A, a better example. So China is a currency manipulator. This is like well-established. People have written about this at great length. It's, it's, it's well-known. that When he talked about that, yes, that is, that is true. When he talked about that on the campaign trail. So what do you do, John, with a currency manipulator? Well, you, you, know, you can take them to the WTO and, and you know, uh, demand some kind of, of, of redress, right? You can uh, demand that from them directly, and you can say, if we don't get that, then we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And if we don't, you know, and eventually you might wind up slapping tariffs on this, that, and the other. Well, Trump skipped all those steps and <laughs> just went straight to the tariffs. And it's not even clear what his demands are on the Chinese. The whole thing is, the whole thing is completely half-baked. He doesn't know what he's doing. That, by the way, that was always clear from the beginning, even when I, when I wrote that story about him back in, uh, in 2016, that he, he was very good at expressing people's anger about the trade issue, but it was never clear that he understood trade at all. This could get bad. I mean, him and his stupid trade wars. Uh, on the plus side, it hasn't gotten bad yet. And, and uh, you know, it seems unlikely to me that Donald Trump would really do something that would injure his billionaire friends, you know, which this has the potential to do. So one of the things you've been saying now for a couple of years uh, is there, despite all his bluster, lies, incompetence, despite everything obnoxious and horrible about him, there is, quote, something real about Trump. And one of those things, as you put it, is that for millions of Americans, there still has not been a recovery from the recession that brought Obama into office. Uh, and the responsibility for that does indeed lie on the Democrats and indeed on Obama himself. That's one of the themes of your book, that the Democrats could have done a lot to bring about recovery from that recession and that, that they failed to do so and that that's really the background to Trump. That's yes, that is exactly right. And that's you put that very well. And I think about this all the time. You know, you read that quote from Michelle Goldberg by the way whose columns in the New York Times I really enjoy. I think she's great. But I have that same feeling when I think about the Obama years, that that sort of feeling of of you know, I, I just, I get so angry about it because when he came into office in 2009 and he was the hero and he was so eloquent and he had the, he had the country behind him and he had both houses of Congress and he had the meanest man, the meanest, cleverest man in American politics, Rahm Emanuel at his side. This is a guy that should have been unstoppable, uh, Barack Obama. He should have been able to get whatever he wanted and he should have been, I mean, he came into office at a time of deep crisis, uh, you know, the financial crisis. We're heading into a deep recession. He should have been the Franklin Roosevelt of our time. Yeah. That's what I thought he was going to be. Yeah. And that's what I, you know, he could have had with a little, you know, a little kind of Lyndon Johnson political hardball, could have got whatever he wanted uh, through Congress, but he frittered that away. And the frustration to me is that now we are back with this. It's like, it's like it never happened. We're back with the culture wars. You know, Trump picking fights about the flag. Trump picking fights with the NFL. You know, Trump naming Supreme Court judges. We're right back to where we started. 
a Republican is back in, and he is, you know, and it, it, it's we had this fantastic opportunity. You know, Roosevelt in the 30s managed the crisis so well and did so well by Americans that the Democrats had a majority in, in uh, the House of Representatives from from then until the 1990s, you know, for 60 years with, with, with two brief interruptions. Uh, you know, that's the power of that kind of good government. And Obama had that in his hands, and it slipped through his fingers. And I just... It, it, it makes me so furious. Not furious. It makes me. I don't know what. I don't know what I can say about it. It's. It's. There, there's something so depressing that now we're just back where we started, you know. And that Republican governance was not permanently discredited by the crash of 08, which it should have been. Uh, you know, George W. Bush should still be <laughs> in infamy. Instead, we regard him as as a good guy nowadays. Yeah. You know, we wish he was back. So, so it, it is just like it drives me crazy. But exactly the way, what you said is exactly is exactly true. That people were still desperate eight years after the financial crisis, or however many years, and desperate enough to elect this charlatan into the White House in 2016. And by the way, de- still desperate. I mean, look at what's going on out there in America. Nation columnist Gary Young went back to Muncie, Indiana, a year after Trump was elected. He had spent the election season there, and he asked Trump supporters what they thought now. Most of them said they didn't really much like Trump as a person. They wouldn't want their kids to grow up to be like Trump. They wouldn't even really want to have a beer with Trump, but they still hoped he might do something that would help them with their problems, and they didn't think that Hillary would have. Yeah, that's. I think that's almost exactly right. That certainly uh, dovetails with everything that I've read uh, about the election. Uh, Trump was the most unpopular presidential candidate of all time, and Hillary was the second most unpopular. In 2016, as the Trump election was approaching, you published that book, called Listen Liberal, you warned about everything that we have talked about, everything the Democrats were doing wrong and needed to change. Tom, did the liberals listen? They didn't listen then, John. They're not listening now. And as far as I can tell, there is no, there is no listening program on the horizon. John, there wasn't even a postmortem after this election. I don't think they even intend to, uh, after 2016, I don't even think they intend to... Um, you know, there's a real problem with the Democratic Party. These are people who are uh, out of touch. Uh, they, a lot of their leadership is very elderly. Um, they are determined to not yield. They don't understand what is happening in America. And now remember something, the populist wave of 2016 wasn't just in the Republican Party. It was in the Democratic Party as well. Yes. You know, the Bernie Sanders movement. And they they managed to, uh, the Republicans were not able to stop Trump, but the Democrats were able to stop Bernie Sanders. And you'd think they would, you know, after the debacle that enfolded them that year, you'd think they would look back at that moment and say, you know, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe we should have played it differently. Uh, maybe we should be more open to this kind of politics, but they're not. And every indication is that that Bernie Sanders-style uh, populism is still rolling in this country. Those people are still mad. Tom Frank, his new book is Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. Thank you, Tom. John, it is my pleasure. We spoke with Tom Frank in July. 
I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Christmas with Bob Dylan. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening Jerry quickly. But first, it's time to talk about Bob Dylan's Christmas album. Our guest is Sean Wilentz. He's the official historian at the official Bob Dylan website, He also teaches American history at Princeton. He's written many books, including The Age of Reagan. It's out now in paperback. We turn to him today to help us understand what the heck is going on with the new Bob Dylan Christmas album. We reached him today in Princeton. Sean, welcome back to the program. Uh, Great to be back, John. Well, I want to start by listening to track one Here Comes Santa Claus. It's a Gene Autry song, which I have to say is one of the most irritating holiday songs ever written, (laughs) even before Bob Dylan sang it. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, ran down Santa Claus today. Fixing and fixing and old as reindeer, pulling on the reins. Bells are ringing, children singing, all is merry and bright. Hang your stockings, see your bears, cause Santa Claus comes tonight. Hang your stockings, say your prayers. Sean, what is this? Is this a joke of some kind? No, it's not a joke at all. Although, you know, you could turn it into one by imagining the person who's really singing is Vincent Price. <laughs> Here's a certain macabre. Uh, mm. to the song. So you can look at it that way. You can look at a Bob Dylan song any way you want. But no, no, no. This is all very, very straight. Um, this is Bob Dylan in, in, in many ways um, looking back to his own childhood. And uh, he's singing the songs that he heard as a kid in Hibbing, uh, where everybody you know listened to Christmas music, whether you were Jewish or not. Um, and he's recalling those times and those songs in that spirit. Uh, and I understand that uh, that the album itself is a uh, benefit and uh, that the royalties are all being donated to charity. In perpetuity, that's right. Um, all of them, it's going to go, the royalties are going to feed America in the United States, and I think that there are some, um, there's a group in the U.K., and there's another group to, you know, to feed the homeless. You know, basically, this is uh, Bob Dylan in some ways um, being the character Pretty Boy Floyd from the old Woody Guthrie song, He's, you know, um, providing Christmas dinner to the families on relief. It's just that he's not sticking up a bank. He's sticking up his own fans. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's listen to another one. Um, I'll be home for Christmas. I have to say, when Bob Dylan sings I'll be home for Christmas, you have to wonder, is this a promise or is this a threat? <laughs> I'll be home for Christmas You can plan on me Please 
Dylan, I'll be home for Christmas. Uh, sounds like a reason to bolt your doors, Sean. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's hard to say what home is for Bob Dylan because he's on his bus so much of the time when he's not getting arrested that, you know, being home for Christmas is a big deal for him because, uh, you know, he's not on his bus. But, you know, this is part of what the album's about. That's a song that was originally recorded by Bing Crosby, as were, I think, 13 of the 15 songs on this album. It's a, sort of his tribute to Bing Crosby, among other things. But um, in 1943, remember, Christmas songs during World War II had a whole different meaning. I mean, they were very, uh, it was very touching, actually, very moving. It was one of the, uh, it, was, it was the music, actually, that kind of held people together, uh, wondering whether their boys and, in some cases, girls overseas would ever come home alive, ever. Um, so, you know, this is a very moving song. It was moving in the 40s, and then after the war, Christmas music became a kind of way to uh, assert with some uh, aggressiveness, to assert a kind of normality, which people hadn't felt, a lot of people in America hadn't felt uh, since the beginning of the Depression back in, 19, you know, back in the early 30s. So he's, he's, he's trying to recapture that in part, recapture that mood, which is bigger than Christmas, uh, bigger than Christmas in America. It has to do with a specific time and a specific place. And uh, it's also, as I say, a sort of tribute to Bing Crosby. He doesn't have Bing Crosby's voice, but he's copying Bing Crosby's phrasing, and I know he admires Bing Crosby's phrasing, so uh, that's his, his chance to do that, too. Well, let's listen to another one. Uh, maybe you want to you wanna say anything about this one, Must Be Santa? This one includes uh, our own David Hidalgo, uh, the, the uh, great uh, East L.A. Uh, musician who's a big favorite of ours here. Indeed, Los Lobos. He's the yeah. man. He's maybe the most gifted, one of the most gifted musicians that Dylan's ever worked with. Um, um, Must Be Santa is my favorite song on the album. It's a polka song. It's basically ripped off from a Texas, the arrangement of a Texas uh, rock polka band. Um, and, but it also recalls, again, his Christmas time because it recalls the great polka bands of the Midwest of the 1940s and 1950s. People like, um, you know, Whippy John Wilfart, um, his real name, Frank Yankovic. Uh, Would you please Louisville. spell the last name of Whoopi John Wilfart, <laughs> yes, please? W-I-L-F-A-H-R-T. Now, are you uh, sure that this is not one of Bob Dylan's many pseudonyms? <laughs> like Roosevelt Gook. <laughs> yeah. No, I have a photograph of Whoopi John Wilfart at the Minneapolis airport taken at about the same time, about 1948, with his band. And I, and I happen to know a lot about Whoopi John. He, uh, he was quite a character. When he died, it turned out there was, he had left money in most of the, the hotels of the Midwest, um, stashed away of, uh, lots and lots of money and uh, um, basically hiding it from the feds. And he lived, lived quite a wild life, um, as you might imagine, by a man named Whoopi John. 
<laughs> well, let's let's. Which I would never call you, John. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that, Sean Wilentz, the official historian of the official BobDylan.com website. From the Bob Dylan Christmas album, let's listen to Must Be Santa featuring uh, David Hidalgo of Los Lobos. <laughs> Oh, they're dancing in the corridors here at KPFK. <laughs> Must be Santa, Bob Dylan with David Hidalgo from the Dylan... I'm, da- I'm dancing here in prison. Everyone's great time. <laughs> uh, let's listen to uh, another one. Here's Bob Dylan's Winter Wonderland. Wonderland, winter wonderland, wonderland. Sleigh bells ring, are you listening? In the lane, snow is glistening A beautiful sight, we're happy tonight Walking in a winter wonderland Gone away is a bluebird In his place is a new bird He sings a love song as we go along Walking in a winter wonderland In the meadow we can build a snowman and pretend that he is passing ground He'll say, are you married? We'll say, no man But you can do the job when you're in town Later on, we'll conspire As we dream by the fire To face unafraid the plans that we made Walking in a window Bob Dylan, he sounds like your grizzled old uncle who's had a little too much of the spiked eggnog at the family <laughs> gathering. I, I think that's the point, actually. Actually, there's the Wonder Bread Singers, you know, the, the, the whitest <laughs> white bread singers I've ever heard. But you also listen closely and you hear Donnie Heron on the, on the pedal yeah. steel. I think it's the first time that Winter Wonderland's been done, at least in recent memory, uh, with a pedal steel guitar. Dylan adds always a touch. There are touches of, of, uh, of the current Bob Dylan along with the Bob Dylan, what Bob Dylan was hearing when he was seven years old. You know, this this whole uh, project made me think of Dylan's uh, radio program on uh, yes. XM and Sirius Satellite, where uh, we see what a, a connoisseur and scholar Bob Dylan is of these pre, uh, pre-rock, earlier 20th century genres. In a way, this is part of that project. Very much so, except the difference is, I mean, this could be a show from that series called Christmas. Um, mm-hmm. But the difference is that he sings all the songs. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't just introduce them. But in fact, one of the songs, What Must Be Santa, actually did appear in the, um, I forget the name of the, of the band, but uh, anyway, on, on his Christmas show from, from XM, you know, Sirius XM. So, yes, there is a similarity. He knows a lot about it. He wants to, you know, this is an active archival, uh, you know, he's an archivist, among other things, and um, this, this album is an example of that. 
Uh, let's listen to another one. Of course he has to do Old Little Town of Bethlehem. little town of Bethlehem, I can only say there must be some way out of here. <laughs> this is not one of my favorite cuts on the album. <laughs> um, there, there, there are others that are better. Um, uh, a little town of Bethlehem, yeah, not his best performance. Either. Well, you know, some we... Songs, some of the, well, some of the songs just don't, I mean, Christmas produced a lot of interesting, wonderful music, which is why so many people cut Christmas albums. Mm-hmm. Right? Everybody from you know um, Frank Sinatra to uh, Ray Charles to uh, Barbara Streisand. I mean, even the Jews cut Christmas albums, right? Uh, Neil Diamond has a new one, even the second one. Um, so th- there's a songbook, a real songbook. But some of the songs are very difficult. This is one of them, actually. And uh, the Christmas song, the famous Mel Torme song, is also you need a real range to sing those songs well. And I'm afraid that this doesn't quite do it, at least not for me. We're speaking with Sean Wilentz. He's the official historian at the official Bob Dylan website, bobdylan.com. One thing that strikes me about this this uh, music that's so puzzling, so confusing, so troubling to the uh, Bob Dylan's uh, um, classic Band music, yeah. Bob has always... Uh, made a practice of pulling the rug out from under fans who thought they had him pegged. Right. He spent a lot of his career refusing to fulfill his fans' wishes. Right. And this is certainly part of that. Uh, you can see it that way. I mean, the other thing is this is a cover album, right? I mean, these are all cover songs. There's not a single Bob Dylan song on here that he wrote. Um, and whenever Bob Dylan does a cover album, um, it usually means that there's a change... There's a change going to come. Um, he did self-portrait, which got roundly panned, especially by I don't know if I can say this on the air, but you'll you'll remember Greil Marcus's famous first line of his review in Rolling Stone of that album, which is "What is this blank? Um, what is this crap? But not quite crap. Not quite that. Yeah. And then you know, and and then he went on to do you know, Blood on the Tracks. Right? Yeah. Um, then he did the cover albums in uh, the early '90s. You know, the two folk acoustic albums, uh, "Good as I've Been to You" and "World Gone Wrong." And the next thing he comes out with is Time Out of Mind, which is a whole different thing. Yeah. So who knows what's going to come? Here's, here's another cover-up. So it's, 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 it's Bob Dylan trying to, trying to... And I actually kind of mean this. It's him plumbing his depths. He's trying to find something. He's trying to locate something in his soul, in himself, in his music. And this is the way he does it, by singing other people's songs, singing a whole album of other people's songs. Um, so, so it's interesting for that. You have to watch out for that. The second thing is... 
this is the first time he's done a Christian album since Shot of Love. In other words, this is a spiritual record. This is about his beliefs. I mean, you know, he's 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 he's, he's a Christian of a of a very weird kind. So you have to see it in that context too. I mean, there's a lot of different ways in which Dylan is, and that also disappointed his fans, by the way. You know, when he went gospel, people thought yes, just disappointed on. is putting it mildly. Yeah, people went nuts. Um, although I think that in retrospect, if you go back and listen to some of those albums, not not all of them, not saved, but but if you listen to Shot of Love again, you will be very surprised. There's a lot of really good music on. Well, got to got to serve somebody. Uh, in retrospect, does have some some strengths. Uh, Slow Train coming, absolutely. And but go back and listen to Shot of Love sometime. You'll you know the song about Lenny Bruce. Um, uh, it's him kind of being semi-secular. Um, but anyway, my point is only that Bob Dylan is doing a lot of different things at, at the same time, and he's doing a lot of different things at the same time in this album. It just sounds so schmaltzy and innocuous, but nothing with Bob Dylan, even at, at its most schmaltzy, is, is to be taken completely at face value. Well, I think we've got time for one more. Let's listen to, from the Bob Dylan Christmas album, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. A merry little Christmas Let your heart be light Next year All our troubles will be out of sight Have yourself a merry little Christmas Make the Yuletide gay Next year all our troubles will be miles away Once again as in olden days Happy golden days of your faithful friends who are dear to us will be near to us once more. Faithful friends who are dear to us. Uh, Sean Wallance, I don't know, you can say, uh, you know, this isn't singing, it's croaking. But, you know, when Tom Waits croaks, a lot of people think it's great. Or when Louis, Louis Armstrong sings this song, and he, you know, he doesn't have a beautiful voice either in the classic Absolutely. sense. I don't, know, I don't know what the complaining's about. I really don't. <laughs> it's the same voice that's saying, you know, love and theft, and, the, you know, I, I, I don't quite get it. It's that I think it has more to do that you're not, you're used to hearing these songs sung by Nat King Cole. Yeah. Or by, you know, someone with, or Mel Torme, someone with a very smooth voice. Um, so... Bob Dylan is certainly adding a new dimension to Christmas <laughs> that we didn't hear before. Um, but it's a voice that is instantly recognizable, you know, much as, say, Louis Armstrong's was. You know, when you hear those voices, it takes you two, se- two nanoseconds, you know who you're listening to. Yeah. And um, so immediately that conjures up a whole series of associations. And then it's not just the voice, which at times falters, it doesn't hit the notes, you know, on that, on that, on that track in particular. But again, it's about the phrasing. Listen to how he's parsing out his words. Listen to how he's doing that with the music. 
it's, it's actually it's actually a very um, much more complicated record than than people uh, would think about because he's taking all that seriously, maybe more seriously now than anyone else because this song has been sung by a million other people. Yeah, I mean, Bob Dylan. When he sings, you know, I don't know, um, um, Summer Days or any of the songs that he's done recently, he's the only person who does those. Maybe Sheryl Crow will do them too, but very few anymore, right? It's not like Peter, Paul, and Mary. It's his song. Now he has to go up against the entire galaxy of American singers going back to, you know, Eddie Cantor um, and before. Um, So he has to add something new to a tradition, and that's part of what's going on here too. Sean Wolentz is the official historian at the official Bob Dylan website. He also teaches American history at Princeton. He's the author of The Age of Reagan. Sean, thank you for helping us understand. (laughs) Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure. Bob Dylan's Christmas album was released in 2009. We spoke about it with Sean Wolentz that year, and we have replayed that interview here every holiday season since then. We have about one minute left here, so it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Minneapolis has decided to eliminate single-family zoning, a classification that long perpetuated segregation. This is a bold move to address the affordable housing crisis and confront a history of racist housing practices. The Minneapolis City Council voted last Friday to get rid of the category of single-family zoning and instead allow residential structures with up to three dwelling units, that is duplexes and triplexes, in every neighborhood of Minneapolis. Minneapolis is believed to be the first major city in the United States to approve such a change citywide. Minneapolis fights segregation by eliminating zoning for single-family housing. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of Trump Watch on KPFK. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my guest, David Dayan, talked about drug prices and his book about Steve Mnuchin. We also listened to an archive edition of Tom Frank from Obama to Trump. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. I'm John Wiener. I'll be back next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.